Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. And if there are any kids in here for the big kids class, they can also be dismissed right now and head upstairs um, for their time in the Word today. Thank you for joining us. My name is Dwayne. I'm one of the pastors here at the District Church. We're just going to keep those pads rolling. Um, Lauren, could you grab that back there real quick? Or Jordan's got it. I mean, I like to set the mood, but you know, I don't want to overdo it. So we have finished up our series in the book of Acts. And so we walked through the book of Acts for about 18 months um, and wrap that up just over the last couple of weeks. And so now we are moving into a new series that we're going to spend um, about the next eight to nine weeks in. Um, and it's going to be us looking at a few different psalms. Um, I'm really excited to, drive, uh, to dive into psalms because particularly um, they're so much more unique than a lot of the other books of the Bible because they're literally the hymn book for Israel's worship of God. Um, because they were not just read or studied, but these psalms were prayed and sung. And not only that, but they're also made up of um, multiple authors. There's about eight different authors of the 150 psalms. Um, David is the primary author of about 73 of the 150 psalms. And they also carry a lot of different themes throughout them. We see themes of joy and lament, thanksgiving and confidence, remembrance and wisdom. But one of the things I love about the Psalms is because they were prayed and sung, um, these weren't just kind of uh, scriptures that they would throw on their walls in order to kind of like decorate their house and kind of look to it every once in a while. Like these were Psalms that they ingrained within their hearts so that when the coming Messiah arrived, it would just kind of burst forth from them. And so, for example, in Mark chapter 11, when Jesus is coming and he's having his triumphal entry, into Jerusalem, you literally hear the people break out singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're singing Psalm 118. And so it wasn't something that they were like, when Jesus is coming, let's get together really quick and like form a worship meeting and let's figure out what would be the best song to sing when he arrives. No, it, this was within them. This was in their hearts. It was embedded. It was ingrained. It literally just burst forth from them. The exact moment of what they were longing for happened, and then they were now able to express it in its fullness because the Word of God was driving that. Because again, they had been meditating on this. They had been praying this. They had been singing this already so that at the appropriate time, it would happen. As I consider our fall in the Psalms, one aspect about this particular book um, that I've been most drawn to is that the Psalms uniquely teach us um, how to think and feel rightly. Because I don't know if you're aware, we can actually think and feel wrongly. Um, like that, that can happen. Um, you can think wrong thoughts. You can feel wrong emotions. Um, those things can be driven by external things that, that don't necessarily lead to our flourishing. And so the Psalms allow us to kind of have a roadmap to navigate our thoughts and our emotions that anchor us ultimately to who God is and what he is doing. The Psalms are also kind of like a scripture-based personality test for us. 
Um, I don't know if you're a fan of personality tests. I like them. I don't worship them. Um, I, I don't think they're kind of the key to unlocking like the human code, but I think they're helpful in different ways. And so if you're familiar with different personality tests, like Enneagram, I'm an eight. If you're familiar with um, your unique design, I'm a persister. If you're familiar with Meyer-Briggs, I'm an ENTJ. Uh, and what these kind of personality tests kind of some ways kind of point me into one picture is like I'm a persister, I'm a challenger. Um, like I'm someone who thinks through organizational strategies and I start to kind of play like, okay, I need to grab this person, recruit this person, plug them in here. And I just work and move it in that way. Like that's the way that I think through things um, because I usually process things through thought versus emotion. I'm a thinker versus a feeler. Even though I know I'm a very emotional person, that's not my go-to because I'm very skeptical of emotions. Um, there have been a couple of moments in my life, especially in pastoral ministry, that have really challenged this. Like I, I always have a category for placing an event or a moment into it so that I can kind of process through and work through it. But there's been several moments that have happened throughout um, throughout my ministry over the last 12 years that have really kind of caused me in a season to be like, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know how to respond. I don't know how to process this. Um, for example, when I was, I was a youth pastor in Tennessee for about seven years during 2007 to 2013, and, and during those seven years, there was a class of students that I walked with from them being in sixth grade to them graduating in 12th grade. Like they were the only ones that I had the entire time, their middle school to high school careers. And when, I, when they were graduating, literally my last two weeks as a youth pastor was taking them on their senior trip down to Florida. And then two weeks after that, we then, my wife and I moved to Florida to start planting a church down there in Miami, Florida. And so two weeks after I finish working as a youth pastor, I'm down in Florida and I'm driving around looking for some jobs. And I just finished up with a job interview and I was on my way back to where I was staying. And I get this phone call and it's from Ashley, who was my senior pastor back in Tennessee. He was my mentor. He was my youth pastor when I was in high school. So I'd, we had been with each other for a long time. And so we knew each other really well. And he said, are you driving right now? I said, yes, I'm, I'm driving. I'm on the interstate. And he said, um, I'm going to need you to go ahead and pull over um, because something really bad has happened. And I could just, I could hear it in his voice that it was something very tragic. And that class that I kind of walked with from their middle school to high school years, there were five guys in particular that, that I just poured my life into. And I could... <laughs> Man, I am emotional, okay? So, like, I'm not always just a thinker, but Taylor, Austin, Brock, Nathan, and Sloan were the five guys that I poured my life into. And when we pulled off the road, he literally told me, he said, uh, I'm at Sloan's house right now, and last night he committed suicide. And I just remember, like, this was the first moment for me in ministry of having that type of scenario happen. Up until that point, everything's been easy for us. Everything's been, it was a fruitful ministry in Tennessee. It was a fruitful life. We never had to worry about anything. We never had to worry about finances. Like we had an easy life up until that point. And I had no category to place the overwhelming emotions that I was feeling and that I was trying to process through in that moment. Literally, all I had was. Prayer and presence. Like, that's all I knew to go to was prayer and just being present in the moment. I had no words for his parents. I had no words for my home church back in Tennessee. 
And here I was 15 hours away, literally on my own down there. Kelsey was actually back in Tennessee at the time, and I just didn't know what to do. Fast forward, we get here to um, Indianapolis. That's where we live now. Uh, We get here to Indianapolis, and this was two years ago, um, July 4th, 2017. We're throwing a 4th of July party with our church. I'm sorry, July 2018. We're throwing a 4th of July party with our church, and I get a phone call, and this is from one of my Really good friends. He's one of our mentors here in Indianapolis. He's one of the strategists for kind of our city when it comes to church planning. And he's saying, hey, I, right now I need you to pray earnestly. Like, like Whatever you're doing, you need to stop and you need to pray for Jason Hampton and his family. They're having a church plant party. And literally, he said, right now they're trying to resuscitate their two-year-old son who had just drowned in a pool. And like this is another one of those moments for me that like we break, we pause, we pray. We're trying to figure out, Lord, like, what are you doing? What are you doing in this moment right now? Like, this is a dear friend of mine. He's a church planter. We are literally in the same stage of life and ministry and what we're doing. And a week later, I attend the funeral of a two-year-old. And I remember on the way home, just processing what had just happened. And as I'm processing, I'm, I'm, I'm having the image and the the view of this two-year-old in a casket, and I'm thinking, I've got my son, Ezra, at home, who's two years old at the same time. And this very well could have been us. And I don't have a category for the overwhelming emotions that I'm feeling. I don't know what to do in that moment. I don't know how to, how to work my way through this. And then in January, as many of you know, but if you're not, if you haven't known or you're new here, um, I was on my way home from work, and when I was pulling into my neighborhood, there was a car broke down. I pulled over around to help the guy out, and it was a staged breakdown, and he ended up assaulting me and robbing me. He attended, or attempted to stab me in the head and in the stomach, and immediately, I, I don't pride myself in a negative way, but like I pride myself as being someone who's very secure with himself, very um, assured of what, uh, who I am, what I can do, and whatnot. And, and for the first time in my life, I was insecure. Not sure like how to focus, how to process thought. Um, just emotionally, it was just a wreck. And still feeling these things. Still trying to figure out how to navigate these emotions that are going on in my heart, my mind. And then fast forward again in May, Josh and myself were down in, uh, Josh is another one of our pastors, we were down in Kentucky and we were golfing, it's one of my favorite things to do, and we were golfing and, and this was my favorite course, Kenny Perry Country Club, and we were literally starting the back nine, we're on hole 10, I'm taking my second shot, I remember specifically where I was and I get a call from Kelsey and I can just hear it in her voice. Something's bad, something's wrong, something's going on. So I stop, I pause, I move over, I say, what's going on? And she said, and, and she said, Kevin Galloway was killed in a car accident this morning. And Kevin Galloway was my primary mentor and coach. He's literally the guy that on a weekly basis I'm calling to process through all of these emotions, all of this stuff that's going on in my life. How do I lead a church? How do, I, how do I deal with this thing that's happened in January? How do I deal with just life and ministry and the balance and all these things? And then he's gone. 
And I used to say, again, I was a pretty emotionally stable person. Um, that I could have the same mood, whether it was morning or night, it didn't matter. I was always the same. And I've now found that, like, I've, I, I, in some ways, feel, I don't necessarily always come off this way, but I feel as though I'm just all over the place. Um, that there's not this kind of unwavering steadfastness of my emotions anymore. But what has happened in this entire process is it has forced me to begin a really long and beautiful but difficult journey to see what God has provided for me through his word that calms the storm of my thoughts and my emotions. That brings me to an anchor that holds me, that allows me to be steadfast. And honestly, I share all that because throughout the journey, the Psalms have been a really safe and beautiful place for me. It has given me a way to bring those emotions I don't really trust into the presence of God that I do trust. There have been so many psalms that have ministered to me over the course of that time. Psalm 6, verse 2, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. Psalm 51, which will be one of the psalms that we cover in a couple of weeks. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Or Psalm 66, blessed be God because he, was not, he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. And on and on I could go. What the Psalms have helped do with me personally is to give me a roadmap to navigate through those thoughts and emotions in a way that moves me toward God. Toward Him, not away from Him. John Calvin said he wanted to call the Psalms the anatomy of the soul because there's not an emotion in the entire human experience that isn't expressed in the Psalms. Like in a physical mirror, we see... How we're doing on the outside, the Psalms reveal our inside and help us see if we are moving toward God or away from Him. I love what Eugene Peterson says it this way. People look into mirrors to see how they look. They look into the Psalms to find out who they are. A mirror is an excellent way to learn about our appearance. The Psalms are the biblical way to discover ourselves. A mirror shows us the shape of our nose and the curve of our chin Things we otherwise know only through the, the reports of others. The Psalms show us the shape of our souls and the curve of our sin. Realities that are deep within us, hidden and obscured, for which we need focus and we need to name them. Here's a statement I wrote to summarize kind of the Psalms as we step into them. The Psalms teach us to pray by bringing every thought and emotion in the human experience into the context of God's story. Through the Psalms, our hearts, whether broken or bursting, become aligned with God's heart. The Psalms help lead our thinking and our feeling Godward. That wherever we are in life, whatever befalls us, whether it's pleasure or it's pain, the words which come from God become the steps by which we find Him and run to him. This is the Psalms. This is what they mean. 
This is what they're doing. And so with that in mind, let's open up to Psalm chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the first psalm today, which often theologians see this as kind of the introductory into the psalms. And a lot of others even kind of refer to it as the introduction to the Bible as far as if you were going to kind of process through the scriptures using a filter. Psalm 1 is the way that we should do that. It's not a very long psalm. It's six verses. We're going to start reading through it, and then we'll dive deep into it. Psalm 1, starting at verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. I want to pray real quick. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for these psalms that over these next few weeks we are going to be walking through. God, my prayer is that as we read your word, as we sing your word, as we pray your word, and as we open up your word and study it and preach it, God, my prayer is that our people will be anchored to you and you alone. That there's going to be so many things in our lives that come at us, whether it's pleasures or pain, that sometimes we don't know where to place it. We don't know how to navigate it. God, my prayer is that your Psalms would help us with that, that would help give us categories to think through and to process our emotions that are bursting or that are broken. Father, would you lead us Holy Spirit, guide us in understanding these psalms and the truths, the beautiful truths that are found here that come from you. And would you let it transform our hearts and our minds to become daily more and more like Jesus Christ for his glory and for our ultimate joy and satisfaction. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. One thing that we notice here in this first psalm is that the psalm begins with the word blessed and it ends with the word perish. And so these are kind of the two um, polar opposite things that I want to look at. And I want to look at these and I want to dive deep into the idea of what it means to be blessed and what it means to perish because this is a biblical reality. There, There is no in between. People are either going to end blessed or they are going to end perishing. And so there's, there's, there's not another category. There's not another option. We all will land in one of those two categories. Whether you're in this room or not in this room, every person who has ever lived will be blessed or will perish. And I want to look at these realities because I think, unfortunately, in our current modern day culture, we kind of water down these two realities. We water down what it truly means to be blessed. And we also water down what it actually means to perish. 
And because of that, I think it's very important for us to look at this. But here's the reality. I don't even want to ask the question, like, do you want to be blessed or do you want to perish? Because I, I've never met a person that's like, don't want to be blessed. I want to perish. I'm like, even the ones who are like, I'm on the highway to hell and I can't wait to get there and it's going to be a party with Satan and whatnot, in their mind is thinking that's going to be fun. That's going to be blessed. That's going to be a good time. Blaise Pascal, a 17th century French mathematician and theologian, real gem to hang out with. He says this, All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every human being, even of those who hang themselves, is the pursuit of blessing, the pursuit of happiness, the pursuit of satisfaction. That's what drives what every action a person makes is toward, is the hope of receiving some type of peace or enjoyment. What Pascal is saying is this, is we, we all want to be blessed regardless of the means by which we get there. The truth of the Bible is that God has introduced specific means which lead to a blessed life. And by contrast, God has also informed us that there are specific means which lead to a life that will perish. God is good and gracious to be a creator who communicates with his creation these realities. And Psalm 1 is a short six-verse chapter where God is both instructing us and informing us on both of these realities. If you follow this, you will be blessed. If you follow this, you will perish. So let's look at the context about perishing first so that it's bad news first followed by gospel good news. Who will perish? The Hebrew word for perish is abad, which translates as perish or vanish, destroyed, put to death, and be exterminated. No one wants that. No one's like, sign me up. That sounds like a good time. It in no way communicates that it's just merely a bad life in comparison to a good life. Or someone who has a hard life in comparison to an easy life. Like to perish doesn't mean that it's just you having it more difficult than someone else who's having it easier. When we typically think of someone who is blessed, we think of someone who has acquired material wealth, never gets sick, is adored by all those around them, and on and on it could go. And so by contrast, when we look at that view of being blessed, the opposite would be someone who is poor, always sick, and probably mocked or um, ridiculed by other people. So we would think that's the opposite of blessing in our kind of materialistic modern day culture. But that's not the case at all for someone who's physically poor, physically sick, and potentially looked down upon or mocked by those around them could be, from a spiritual standpoint, very blessed. And I'll explain that one in a minute. So perish is not just the opposite of a secular understanding of being blessed. To think little of blessings in that regard or in that manner is to also think too little of the realities for those who are perishing. Those who are perishing are literally becoming what they already are. In every aspect of their lives, they are dying because spiritually they are already dead. Therefore, they are perishing. Their lives are being destroyed. They are being put to death to the point that every aspect of their life is emotionally 
physically and spiritually exterminated, ending in a judgment from God, depart from me from I never knew you. Depart to where? From God's grace in heaven to God's wrath in hell. Where the Bible in Matthew 13 describes as a fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Like that's the hard truth. That's the hard reality. That's what perishing is. Is that if we are all born, as Romans 3.23 says, that we are all sinners. That there's no one from birth who is pursuing after God, seeking after God, running after God, looking after God. We are physically, spiritually, emotionally, in all respects, dead. In our sins. And then because Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of those sins, the result of those sins, the payment of those sins is death. It's physical, spiritual, emotional death. So you literally, the rest of your life, apart from Christ, is going to be a breaking down of all respects of anything that would bring joy, peace, satisfaction, happiness, any type of blessing to your life. It's leading to eternal death. That's perishing. That's what it means to perish. It doesn't mean that we're just on this kind of road to, I'm trying to have a good day versus a bad day. No, these are eternal, weighty things. And this is a scary reality. It's an inevitable reality. And this is why the gospel message is good news. Because this is all of our realities apart from Christ. If you're in this room and you're not in a relationship with Christ... This is right now the road you're on. Christ is the only one who can change the road for us. He's the only one who can change our identity. God informs us through this psalm, through the Bible, who are these ones that are perishing? He says they are wicked, sinners, scoffers that are like chaff that the wind drives away. There's nothing that grounds or anchors or plants this person to a life that would be life-giving, bearing fruit and ultimately blessed. Instead, it gives this imagery that they are like chaff, tossed to and fro. Chaff is a part of a wheat plant that literally when the wind blows, it just knocks it off and it's gone. This is, think about this in terms of all of those stories that I gave in the beginning. If I was not anchored to Christ in those moments, what's going to happen to my life? Where do I go for hope? Where do I go for, for rest? Where do I go for joy regardless of the circumstances around me? I'm literally going to be tossed to and fro. The New Testament gives us imagery of a boat being out on a sea where the storm comes and the boat it just literally cannot steer its own direction. It's lost and will probably peril to down in its own sinking. It also gives the imagery of a house built on a firm foundation versus a house that's built on sand. When the storms of life come, what happens to the house built on sand? It gets destroyed. This is what's happening for those who are perishing, is that everything in life that is thrown at them only continues to push them towards their own damnation, their own destruction. This is the biblical reality. Those who are wicked sinners and scoffers without the firm foundation of Jesus Christ to give them forgiveness, assurance, and perseverance will be physically, emotionally, and spiritually destroyed by the storms of life, by their own sin, and ultimately for eternity for the wages of their sin. Namely, death and separation from God's grace and mercy. That's heavy, but true. It's true. 
So who will be blessed? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't listen to and follow the advice of those who are counseling him to live a life contrary to God's. Advice is good. Gospel advice is better. Gospel advice is better. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners. He's not holding fast to the guidance or direction of those who say this is how you should live your life contrary to God's design. He doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. He is not resting in the validation that he is better than everyone else around him. For those are what scoffers do. Scoffers love to mock and treat others as though they are basically idiots. Blessed man does not do those things. Those things are what causes you to be tossed to and fro and eventually perish. Rather, blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. His delight. We're not even talking about his mind yet. We're just talking from his emotional, spiritual being. He has a delight. He has a desire. He has a longing that is deep within him for what God is communicating to him. He's looking at his life and he's saying, here's all these things around me that are pushing me to my own destruction. But Lord, you are providing a way that leads to my own joy and satisfaction in which I can glorify and worship and adore you above all things. And if that is the greatest thing for me, then that is where my longing is going to be. That's where my desire is going to land. The psalm goes on to give some imagery for this blessed man. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Now, around here, we don't have great examples of trees planted by streams of water because we live in Indiana and there's no water. We have the White River, but it's, it's, it's a creek. Anytime we have a storm around here, you see trees just down, right? Like, I mean, it's branches down, trees down, blown over all the time. Because a lot of them aren't planted by streams of water. They like, don't have something that anchors them that allows them to be very fruitful. Us spending our time down in Miami, you've got the, like, palm trees don't make sense. Because when you look at them, they're top heavy. And then they got these really skinny poles. But you have these hurricane winds that come through and literally bend them all the way down to where you can see the leaves touching the ground. And as soon as the wind stops, bloop. They're right back up. It's a crazy reality. And when you start looking into kind of the anatomy of a palm tree, it's the root system that, has, that, that literally is the game changer for it. So up here, our root systems are, are very lacking, but the trees are large and beautiful and whatnot. But down there, the trees are kind of gangly. And, and, but their root systems, you see them go deep into the ground and there's Hundreds of these little tiny roots that go. If you've never seen one, I, I was going to try to find a picture, but I didn't because it's me. But 
but it's incredible the anchoring that they have. And this is the imagery that this is using for us here is that you're anchored by God's word so that it goes deep within your soul so that when anything comes at you, you are unwavering and steadfast. Yeah, it's going to be difficult. Yes, it's going to be painful. Yes, it's going to be anguishing that's going to come. Yes, it's, it's, it's going to cause you a lot of stress and anxiety. But at the end of the day, blesses the man who's planted in the word of God. Because in the word of God is where we literally feed our souls. It's where we find the nourishment that God is providing to us on a daily basis to be able to walk through the storms of life. And so really, like my, my number one point for you today is to commit yourself to the, to the reading of the Bible. Well, that's simplistic. Yes, because we don't do it. Commit yourself to reading the Bible And I shouldn't have to convince you to want to read the Bible because if you are in Christ, if you're in Christ, and what I mean by that is 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, that he who knew no sin, referring to Jesus, he who knew no sin, he was perfect, he lived a perfect life when he came to earth. He never messed up. He who knew no sin, he became sin, So when he went to the cross, God looked at all of the sin of those who would accept him and he placed their sin on Jesus. He became their sin. So that when he paid the penalty for our sin, death, the wages of sin is death. We were all dying in our sin. He pays that penalty for our sin. And when he resurrects three days later, For those who accept him, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those who are in team Jesus, I'm I'm all for Jesus. They receive the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. This is, as as Martin Luther calls it, the, the great exchange. He gives us his identity as he takes our identity and is crushed for it. This new identity that we have is all of the affections of Jesus within us. What does Jesus love? He loves the law of the Lord. He grows in it as he was being raised as a young boy. He's walking into the temple because he knows that's where they're reading and and preaching and proclaiming the law of the Lord. He's going in and reasoning with them as a 12-year-old, actually offering them what it truly says versus what they were saying it was saying. Like Jesus is, in all respects, the greatest person who has anchored himself to the word of God. Which makes sense, because when you read John 1, it literally says he is the word of God. That's for another theology discussion later. But the word of God becomes our spiritual food. I love, as he says in Deuteronomy 8... Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. When Jesus started his earthly ministry, if you were to ask him, hey, um, are we going to do breakfast or are we going to go read the law? 
Jesus is going to say, uh, we're going to go read God's word. That's what we're going to do. When he was fasting for 40 days in the wilderness, did he fast from God's word or did he fast from food? He fasted from food. And what did he do while he was out in the wilderness for 40 days as Satan was coming and tempting him three different times? He recites God's word. And as he's reciting God's word, he's literally anchoring himself to the very source that he needs in order to accomplish his mission. This is the same for us. You want to be a great husband? You want to be a great wife? You want to be a great spouse? You've got to be anchored to God's word. You want to be a great father? You want to be a great mother? You've got to anchor yourself to God's word. You want to be a great coworker? You've got to anchor yourself to God's word. You want to be a great friend? You've got to anchor yourself to God's word. You've got to delight in his, in his word, and you've got to meditate on it day and night. That's really the second point. I, I lied when I said I had one. The second point is not only do you need to read his word, but you need to dig in and study his word. Because this is what we need for food. The way that you assure that you keep growing in the right, true, and Christ-centered gospel is by committing yourself to the Bible. Our fundamental message is that God set forth his son to stand in our place and receive our punishment due our sin to assuage God's right wrath. And listen to me clearly. That is not a message you will ever gain by staring into the stars at night. You won't get that message from a beautiful beach vacation. This is not resonant within the image of God in your moral conscience. This is a message you only get from outside of yourselves because God has revealed himself to us through Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ has revealed himself through the Holy Scriptures. Jesus himself says, I testify to the visible or to the invisible God. He's the visible representation of the invisible God. And what testifies to who Jesus is? The Scriptures. The Scriptures. So if you kind of want to look at it, if you're like an equation type person, if you want to know God, Know Jesus. And if you want to know Jesus, know the word that testifies to Jesus. We can never get to know Jesus apart from his word. And this is what Psalm 1 is introducing to us. Blessed is the person who knows Jesus. Who has Jesus in the Father means you are also in the Father. And that's another theological discussion. But if you want to be in God... Through Christ, the way we get there is through the scriptures. They're what bring the illumination. They're what bring our understanding of who God is and who Christ is. The scriptures matter. They matter. So if you have a Bible at home, you either need to dust it off or plug it in and recharge it. However you read your Bible, I don't know these days. But we got to get into it. As often as you eat and drink for physical life, you need to be reading and studying and meditating for spiritual life. 
I love what Jen Wilkins says. We will not wake up 10 years from now and have passively become more like Jesus. It doesn't happen. What gets us there is trusting what God is doing and growing and transforming us as we are also grace-driven effort diving into his word and getting to know him in a way deeper level than we can by looking at the stars or the beach or whatever it looks like. We can worship God in those areas, but true worship comes from the way he's revealed himself to us through his beautifully communicated word, the Bible. So I pray that you'll open it and that you'll open it more often and that it becomes a discipline, a beautiful discipline in your life. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at